I'm Adam Rappaport. Welcome to the Bon Appetit Foodcast. Joining me today is a chef who I've known for well over a decade. Has had decade, decade, yeah, two two decades. As have millions of Americans. And this guy here, he burst onto the scene in 1991 as a, a brash 26-year-old at Mesa Grill, introducing New Yorkers to upscale Southwestern cuisine. Went on to open several more restaurants, write a dozen cookbooks, star in a gazillion. TV shows, pretty good golfer, and I'm sure back in the day he would tell you he had game on the basketball court. Ladies and gentlemen, the multi-talented Bobby Flay. Hello. Thanks for coming down, Bobby. I, first of all, the views here are ridiculous. Yes, we are on the one, the 36th floor of the One World Trade Center. So good. First time down. Yeah, I haven't been in a new building. It's, we, it's terrific. So, Bobby, I was thinking, so I've known you, yeah, since I was probably at the James Beard Foundation in the mid-90s, and... One thing I think is interesting about your long career is that one consistency, you've always had that, I don't know if you call it swagger or chutzpah. Where does that come from? I like to call it confidence because I put myself on a, on, a, on a mission or a trek, and sometimes it's a long one and sometimes it's a short one, but I just am focused and I just, I have tunnel vision to get there. And so sometimes it just seems that I have that sort of swagger on the way there, but it's really about just being focused on what I'm, what, I'm, what I'm trying to accomplish. And, you know, I grew up in the streets of New York City. I dropped out of high school, like, basically after ninth grade. And so I've learned everything that I needed to learn about life through, through living. Yeah, and you, so you would, had you, had you graduated, it would have been, what, 81 or so? Graduated, what, high school? Yeah. 80, 84, probably. 84 or so. I mean, I think that's interesting. New York, like New York City, people forget New York late 70s was very different than yeah. New York City now. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's actually a lot safer than it than it used to be. Oh, incredibly. But, you know, well, first of all, I mean, I think about how food has changed Yeah. when I think about all the years in New York. And, you know, I was talking to somebody last night about Lutece, you know, which was the restaurant in New York City for so many years. It was, the, was the four-star French restaurant run Andre, by Andre Soltner. Andre, and he was there every night. No, he wasn't there every night. He missed two days in 40 years. <laughs> so let's not give him too much credit. <laughs> His wife was. No, though. literally. I'm not yeah. even exaggerating. And, and and uh, you know, it was just a different time in a different place. We ate differently. We thought of food differently. And all of that has changed. And, and I really feel like um, I got really lucky. I was in the right place at the right time. Food all of a sudden became important. The Food Network was born. People started caring about chefs in terms of, um, you know, not what they, not what, not just what they could cook, but what they could say, and uh, it just changed a lot. But all right, so so you're a literally a high school dropout. You go to work at Joe Allen's in the theater yeah. district. Your dad was an investor. Is that correct in the restaurant? He was he was actually helping Joe run the restaurants. He was trying to make a business out of it. You know, Joe was a really good saloon keeper, basically, and and my father came from a business background. He was you know he's a lawyer. He you know, he worked on Wall Street, and uh, and so he kind of learned the business from the. He learned the restaurant business from the ground up. He's like, I, I want to learn, I want to bartend, I want to wait tables, I want to work the door, so I can understand exactly what, what everybody's job is. And I, I and th and that's something that I take really seriously. I think it's really important that everybody who runs your restaurants understands the people that work for them, um, what they're supposed to be doing. Oh, absolutely. It's the fundamentals. Yeah, it's, it's it's a business. And so so back then, I mean, so what was that relationship like with you and your dad? It was like, oh, here's my son, the screw up? Or was he like, hey, go ahead, do this, Bobby? No. <laughs> he was like, all right, look, um, enough school. Like, I can't try any longer. I mean, he's a very scholarly guy. As I said, he went to law school. He um, He's 84 years old now, and, like, he still is learning. You know, he's still going to school for, you know, to get his master's in art history and, you know, as a 
sort of an advanced aged person, let's, let's say, <laughs> uh, he always wants to learn, speaks five different languages, it's crazy. And, um, and so I hated school, I was the complete opposite of him. And so basically when I got kicked out or dropped out for like the second or third time, he was like, okay, enough, but you can't just hang out with your friends, go get a job. And then so I, he landed me a busboy job at Joe Allen's for two weeks. And then when it was over, um, the chef asked me if I wanted a job in the kitchen, basically on, the, on my way out of the restaurant. And, and, and you started cooking and you worked in a few places, but like I said, this is, this is still kind of mid late eighties. And, you know, at that point, it's early, 80s. early eighties. Yeah. Early eighties. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, did, and, and, but what was your expectations? Did you think, Oh, this could be a career because working in a kitchen, that's a lot of hard work, yeah. and a lot of heat. And it, there was no fashion attached to it at that point. So what were you thinking? It's like, this is me, my life. Yeah, this is it. I mean, I, it, listen, I was living one day at a time at that point, you know, I was 17 years old. So, you know, I wasn't really concerned about the future even because I didn't want to think about it. And uh, and then I and then like I said, I got lucky. I really fell in love with it. And then the French Culinary Institute was opening. Um, and Joe Allen said to me, "Look, you should go check out this school." I was like, "I'm not going to school. School. I just got out of school. <laughs> school sucks, man." Yeah. But I, then I went down there, and they were still building the the, the walls in Soho. Yeah. Yeah. Right on Grand Street, and I met Dorothy Hamilton, and. Uh, you know, she told me the story about her father who had this school called the Apex Technical School. And if you were a kid in New York at that time, you remember the commercials because yeah. the, the commercials were like, and you get to keep your tools. Like that was the Apex Technical <laughs> sure, School. Yes. Exactly. It was a vocational school. And so she was opening this cooking school um, based on a curriculum in France called La Ferrandie. It was another school in, in Paris. And you get to keep the whisk. You get to keep your whisk or you get to keep your knives, you know? And so- I, you know, she convinced me that it was a good thing for me to do. And then Joe Allen paid my tuition. Wow. It was $6,800. I think now it's 50 something thousand. Yeah. I can't even imagine. Yeah. So at that point, so you, so you, you, you graduated from that, your first graduation. Yes. So eventually you found your way to Jonathan Waxman, who had Jam's restaurant, which is very <laughs> famous. Uh, and it's still around, has Barbudo. Talking about Waxman, he's kind of known as this sort of chef whisperer, sort of senior member of the chef world. What, what is Waxman all about and why does so many chefs sort of gravitate towards him? Jonathan's like, the, he's like a, the Renaissance chef. You know, he's, he's like, he's got lots of lives in this business. And, you know, he's opened a lot of restaurants over time. And he was the first person to bring California cuisine to the East Coast. Meaning what? People say California cuisine. In your mind, what does that mean? Then? Yeah. Baby vegetables. <laughs> no, seriously. Yeah. He was, it was like every plate was rimmed with baby vegetables. Um, mesquite wood was a big deal. He was actually cooking on real charcoal grills with mesquite wood. Nobody knew what mesquite was. Yeah. Um, and then he had every, we had every beurre blanc in every color. So there was blood orange beurre blanc, <laughs> chive beurre blanc, chardonnay beurre blanc. Like seriously, like I, I used to have to make like 12 sauces and they were, it was like the colors of the rainbow, but they were all really tasty. And, um, but the food was delicious. And, and, and like I'd walk into jams at lunch and like Julia Child and James Beer would be sitting there having lunch and, you know, charged and paying $32 for chicken but happy in 1981. That. That's awesome. What, um, uh, so then Mesa Grill opens 91. You get recruited by Jerry Kretschmer, uh, father of your now business partner, Lawrence. Right. Um, so, but you had gotten into the Southwest thing before Jerry found you, right? I got into the Southwest thing because I worked at Bud's, which was Jonathan's Southwestern restaurant. And it was the first time I saw like fresh and dried chili peppers and blue corn. Like this is before blue corn chips were in a bag. Yeah. Like I was like, blue corn, what's that? 
You know, like how could food be blue besides blueberries? <laughs> and like he introduced me to all these in incredible ingredients. And that's when I really started honing my skills in Southwestern food because I just found it to be tantalizing. And you just said, I'm going. I, did, at that moment, did you know that you're going to double down on that? Or was it like, oh, I'll try this for a little bit? It's what I, I kept gravitating towards. Did Mesa just take off immediately? You're on Lower Fifth Avenue. TV comes along. Well, the Food Network wasn't even around then. It was not. That's what people, people, it's for people of a younger generation. It's hard, like, you know, guys, there was a time where there was no Food Network. Right. It was only PBS. Yes, that's true. Great chefs of New Orleans. Right. And then Food Network came along and they, and it was in New York and they had no money. It was a startup cable network. And basically, if you could get there by subway, they would have you on. I mean, because they needed people, they needed things to talk about. They weren't really sure what they were doing. And, um, and so, you know, I was there in the very, very early days of Food Network. And, and obviously that worked out well for you. And I've been there 20 years. 20 years. It's crazy. 20 years. So cookbooks, TV shows, and then tons of success and acclaim. And then last year, you, or a little over a year ago, you, you opened Gato Restaurant here in New York. And, and I thought it was interesting. Talk about that, like that, how much of that was a statement that, hey guys, I still got it. I can still open I think a, a lot restaurant of, with acclaim. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people um, took it that way or wrote it that way, and I, I completely understand that. I'm not fighting that 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 tide, but I haven't done anything differently, seriously, in the last 20 years, except got gotten busier. But the most important thing to me, and you know this, is my restaurants, and I cook in my restaurants, and I love to cook in my restaurants. And I just hadn't opened a restaurant in New York in 10 years, you know, since Bar American. I had done some other restaurants in other places in the country, but um, it was time to open a restaurant in New York. Only be and only because the timing was right based on the space that I found. So, so Gato was the thing that was sort of um, the thing that I always thought about in terms of the next version of Bolo. Like it took us five or six years to find the space we wanted. But no, but you say what you enjoy most is being in the kitchen cooking with your whites on. But how do you do that when you're shooting all the TV shows and traveling? And, and like it, you have that inherent conflict and so much going on. How do you focus on what you want to focus on? It, it's not a conflict. I just do it all. I mean, that's the thing that people don't understand, which is that if, if I'm shooting TV, if I have to shoot a series of, of, of let's say, you know, brunch at Bobby's, then, you know, I'm going to do 13 shows in six or seven days. And I'm done by three o'clock in the afternoon. At three forty-five, I'm standing in my apron at Gato. That's crazy. Well, that's what I do. I mean, but I'm not complaining about it. Yeah, I love it. I mean, and I'm not a workaholic. I promise you that. <laughs> I am not a workaholic. But I love my job, and I love my profession, and it's 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 given me tons of happiness. When do you go to the gym? Six o'clock. Are Are you a Soul Cycle guy? I am. I, I like to Soul Cycle. I like. Um, you're gonna laugh Come at me on. when I say Go this. Ahead. I'm taking Tracy Anderson classes. Right wow! Now. I'm the only guy in the class. But you know what? It's That's great. But you know, I'll tell you what. It's um, it's it, it actually works. It's an interesting way to. I, I feel stronger, but I can't. I I also need cardio with it. Wait. So what? So I don't. I have. I mean, I know Tracy Anderson from my wife talking about her Us magazine. How does the class work? What? Well, what is it? the classic classes. I think, and because I don't take them, is a lot of dance. They're all, all the instructors are professional dancers. Uh, people think she's a genius, you know, so she's thought about this method of, of working out. And um, all of her instructors are, are professional dancers, so they can actually stretch across the room. Wow. <laughs> um, but 
I don't take those classes. And and for men, it's a little bit different. There's there's some movement, but a lot of it is body weight and um, lots of leg exercises. And they're trying to strengthen your core as usual. Everyone love people. But everyone loves the core. The core. And I mean, you know, it sucks. It's hard, but it's it. But it, I feel stronger. But I have to run also. Yeah. Um, so you came and spoke at a Bon Appetit uh, publishing side event last year, and you said something interesting about what you look for when you're hiring young line cooks. But like, what is that most important ingredient that you look for someone in terms of potential? Two things. If they're nice and if they're uh, ambitious. I don't care about anything else because um, it's great to have experience, but if, you, if you're a nice person, if you're going to get along with others in your kitchen and you have the ambition to learn – I'm going to teach you what I need you to, need you to know. And yeah. if you have the best attitude, that, that's great. That always works. When I get a cook who has a lot of experience and a bad attitude, it never works. <laughs> so, I, you know, I've been down all those different roads. Yeah, I find that enthusiasm is mm -hmm. such a key ingredient. When you interview someone and they're just, they want to work there. And yeah, they're, and they're, so important. They're, it's just like, wow, yes. Because one thing, you know, I always tell young kids when I interview them or talk to them about getting into the biz, like you realize like you're going to be working with, these colleagues 10 hours a day yeah you you bet you're gonna have to get along you got to be a nice person obviously talent as well but those are such a key ingredient i've, I've found it's imperative um w one thing interesting you're a guy that attracts a fair amount of controversy you have on your on your twitter feed hater free zone and we did an interview with you a couple of years ago and you i thought this was a great quote you said my hater skin is as thick as leather correct how do you deal with that? Because especially I've found like there are times where I've gone onto Twitter, I've said something I probably shouldn't have said, and all of a sudden it's just like yeah, they beat up on you. World War Three. Yeah. Um, you know what? I think that uh, I think that every single person knows inside of them if they're doing the right thing or not. In in, in any in any um, sub in, on on any subject or in any category, and. Listen, we don't always do the right thing, but when you when you when you do the right thing for most of the time and people come after you for either your success or your opinion, too bad. I mean, that's just the way it goes. I mean, and you're never going to satisfy everyone. I always say if you try to satisfy everyone, you satisfy no one. And um and also it's not genuine. I mean, yeah. it's important. Listen, I'm not so outspoken but people know how I feel about things every once in a while. And that's okay. I mean, I'm not, I'm not looking to make a lot of noise about things, but I have a specific goal in mind, especially for my business um, and, and my food. I mean, I cook a specific way. Again, I'm not trying to feed everybody. I'm trying to feed the people that want to eat that kind of food. So how do, you, how do you reconcile that? You've got a lot of people who are getting on you on social media, but you have a gazillion fans out there who love you and your, love your restaurant. Listen, who cares? I mean, and, and I understand why it bothers people. Because I've been there. But that kind of stuff doesn't bother me at all anymore. So how do you handle – do you have any sort of rules for yourself about how you handle social media in terms of Twitter or Instagram, what you do or won't do on them? Yeah. Um, I make no political statements because yep. I don't think that, that – that's not my forum. So why yep. should I take a political stand? I'm a cook. Like the only political statement I'm going to make is like, do you want chicken or salmon? I mean that's going to be it. Have you ever played golf with Donald Trump? I have not. Have you? I did once for an article for GQ. Yeah. Okay. He has a funny swing, but he's good. All right. So no political statements. No political statements. Um, and I don't curse on Twitter. Yeah. I, I, I don't think that it's necessary. Um, you know, I don't, you know, I just don't, you know, I just kind of, I put out positive stuff. Yeah. 
and I talk about the things that we're doing because people want to know. People want to know how things work, right? Yeah. They want to know how you do your job. That's what we do. And so if I'm, sta if I'm standing at Gato on the line and I just made a new dish or a new pizza or whatever it is, I take a picture of it, I put it up. I'm like, this is happening right now at Gato. Come and get it. So you keep it pretty professional. I just find it fascinating. Like there are, because in some ways there are no boundaries anymore. Like your That's life true. is your personal life, is your public life. My wife will put up photos of our son. I feel weird doing that just because I think people who follow me, typically they want to follow the editor of Bon Appetit or whatever, and that's what they're interested in. I never quite know when do you venture into personal territory, when do you just keep it professional? Well, listen, my daughter's now an adult, okay? So she's 19. I wouldn't be doing this if she was 16, honestly, because or 12 or, yeah. or whatever. But now she's an adult. She's her own person, and, um, you know, it's totally fine. What's the best thing she can cook? Um, Ina Garten's home fries. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, she last time she made me breakfast, she had Ina Garten's cookbook out to make me home fries. I was like, you know, your dad has some cookbooks. She's like, Dad, <laughs> Ina's are better. Sorry. I mean, I, we we had Ina on the show last year. I just, I love Ina. Oh, she's the greatest. I just cooked with her uh, this week. Actually, we did a Thanksgiving special together, the two of us for Food Network. I love the fact that I mean, both of you are actually what you see on TV are pretty much what you get in yeah. in real life. She's you know she is Ina. Like she's exactly like she is on the TV. So you did something interesting. You now have 18 Bobby Burgers. 19. Bob, 19, excuse me, Bobby's Burger. One just opened like 10 minutes ago, Bobby's Burger Palaces. Right. You strategically made a decision to not open originally in sort of high-profile places. Like you opened, New York City. Yeah, you opened the mall in Jersey. And yeah. Talk about what the game plan was for the that. The game plan for that, for that is that New York City does not prove or disprove a concept like that you're going to try to roll out because it's New York. So it's its own entity. And so we decided to go to places like some malls, um, some casinos, some campuses. We wanted to try lots of different things to see what you know how the market is for for sort of a you know fast casual burger concept. And uh, you know we've we've learned a lot. We've made some good choices. We've made some mistakes. Well, yeah. What what can you explain? What what's what's worked? What hasn't worked? Uh, the campuses um, have only worked okay. And, yeah. and and it's only you know why it's it's not it's 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 too expensive. That's what I was gonna imagine. Like, and yeah. we never thought that because you know we we come from the seventy five dollar a person restaurant yeah. life. These kids are eating cereal for dinner. Correct, <laughs> and we charge you know I, you know um, um, the average cost of a meal at Bobby's Burger Palace is about ten dollars, and that's too expensive. So some of the kids can afford it, and some don't. Um, the casinos are gangbusters. And then some of the malls are really good and some of them are just okay. The one thing I'm really realizing that, you know, we started this eight years ago, the mall business has changed in eight years. Well, People are clicking a lot more than going to malls. And well, that's a problem. I mean, there's been a lot written about a lot. I mean, there's those crazy photos of just the deserted malls. It looks like something from Planet of the Apes. Yeah, They're exactly. just grown over and just gone. They're gone. The, the high-end ones are still around. But yes. So many of those mid-tier ones just imploded. Exactly. And so our strategy going forward is freestanding building. At some point, we're going to open in New York City. Yeah. Um, it will just lose money. I mean, because we won't be able to afford the rent. That's what's, yeah. How do you, I mean, I see these like places like Sweet Green and whatnot or Hale and Hardy and like you've got to do just crazy volume, right? Crazy volume. And it may not even matter. Yeah. All right. On top of your 19 Bobby's Burger Palaces, you have a new cookbook, Brunch at Bobby's. Yeah. Um, Let's talk. About, I love the intro because you talk about how much you love brunch, but there's a difference between making brunch and going out to brunch. Totally. First of all, most professional chefs hate brunch because they don't want to cook it because they've been out Saturday night after <laughs> service having a few cocktails. 
And all of a sudden, it's you know six thirty, and it's time to crack eggs, right? So, but I've always loved brunch, and I've always taken it very seriously. Um, in fact, um, one of my training methods, one of my uh, sort of militant training methods, which are, are far, far and few between, um, is when we open a restaurant for brunch. I want the staff, including the wait staff, to understand that they need to take this service as serious as lunch or dinner. And a lot of times people just be like, oh, I'm on brunch, whatever. Yeah. And so let's say they have to come at 10 o'clock to set up. At 10.01, I lock the door. And if they're not there, we send them home. Because I want them to understand that we're taking it really, really seriously. Wow. Don't mess with brunch. Don't mess with brunch. <laughs> brunch is important. And also, you have to remember, people going to brunch are also hungover. Yes. And they want to be coddled and they want to be taken care of. So you need to be on your game. But what is the business strategy of brunch? You, I imagine for you guys to be profitable, you need to sell a lot of Bloody Marys and mimosas and stuff. Yeah, yeah? of course. You're going you're gonna to sell a lot of cocktails at brunch because basically brunch st- starts with a cocktail, let's face it. Yeah. And But um, listen, eggs, waffles, you know, butter, flour, sugar, and eggs, like that doesn't cost a lot. So if you're creative, you can actually make a profitable um, service out of it. All right, but you're, but the book is obviously about cooking brunch at home, um, and is that as a man? What you've got like the house with the kitchen island and stuff, and you've been that, there, that sort of thing. Like, so you you actually will cook brunch for people. Oh, absolutely. I cook, especially when I'm in my house in the in, in the Hamptons. I cook basically four meals a day. I stand in my island or out by the grill, and I cook all day long. I love it, Adam. I just love it. it it's it, the thing I do to relax. And people gather around you, so you can be social. And gather around. They just yell from the pool. What are we having for lunch? <laughs> what What time does brunch start? Uh, at my house? Yeah. Well, we start with rosé at around 10. <laughs> <laughs> Pre-game. Exactly. And then you, know, like, you have to make some kind of biscuits or something. You know, and some jams and all that, just to get people sort of going. And then I make some egg dishes, and then I make either some pancakes or some waffles or something in, in the sweet department. It, you know, and pitchers of cocktails. Don't make individual cocktails oh, for brunch. Pitchers. I'm, I'm writing this down. Pitchers of cocktails. Yes, exactly. Um, and then what time is the nap? Around three thirty, <laughs> and then we have dinner at seven. Jeez, it's a tough day. <laughs> it is. It's exhausting. All right, we are going to head into our lightning round now. Um, I'm scared either, of this. Either or questions, you got to answer. I think I think you'll do. I think you'll do well. Um, some of these will be brunch minded. Some of these won't be. Right. All right. Poached or soft boiled? Poached. Really? What's the, what's the key to poaching an egg well? Vinegar. So that really does work. Oh, it's necessary. You have to coagulate the egg, otherwise it just separates. All Big right. word. I learned that. I learned that word in ninth grade, and I left. <laughs> You're like, I'm good. I got this. Um, oh, I like this one. Mister and Mrs. T's or Clamato. <sighs> Mister and Mrs. T's. When you're like on a plane, yeah. there's just nothing better than no. Mister and Mrs. T's. It's amazing. Clamato scares the hell out of me. I know it's like old clam juice for some it's reason. It's just in a can. I'm no. like, I don't need that. No. Fresh or dried chili? Wow. I got to pick one? You got to pick one. Either or, dude. I'm going to go dried. You know why? Because dried chilies, when you rehydrate them, they become really like, they're like thickening agents. So they have they have lots of uses. See, you, I know, I knew, I knew you were going to say that because you're more Southwestern guy. I'm more like that healthy-ish SoCal yeah. Mexican like, sort of thing. Put a slice of Fresno on there for me. Exactly. Your, Avocado, yes, a wedge exactly. of lime, yeah. you know, some, grill, some grilled chicken breast. Yeah, I'm not hating that. <laughs> Uh, Yanks or Mets? Oh, Yankees. Oh, man. Always. Dude, Sorry. I know so, it's like the right time to be doing that, but no. I'm rooting for the Mets. Yeah. I'm not a Met hater. 
I think you can be because they're not like in the same division. Someone brought that up on sports radio the other day. He said, "I I can't root for the Islanders if I'm a Rangers fan because we're in the same division." Okay, but as a Yankee fan, like we're in different no. leagues. I can. Beat. I'm rooting for. I'm totally rooting for the Mets. I mean, I'm a New Yorker. I don't. It's great for great for the city. Mint chocolate chip or Rocky Road. Rocky Road. I mean, no, mint chocolate chip. You know what? What's funny is I thought mint chip, chocolate chip, and Rocky Road came out of my mouth. Wow. There's some wow. That's like some crazy psychologist sort of thing. I mean, I love. I what I love about the, I love how green the mint chocolate chip at Baskin Robbins is, and I also love they're not chips. They're like flecks of yes. chocolate. It's like an astral array of chocolate. Like, have you ever had hints. Grater's ice cream? No. How do you spell that? G R A E T E R S from Cincinnati. Oh, you know, someone black raspberry chip. Yeah, someone got that. I'm not the craziest ice cream on earth. And the chips in their ice cream are like they're not chips. They're they're like. It's like a slate of chocolate. Ooh, I it's like It's crazy. Like a shaving. Yes. No, but no, huge. Huge. A big one. Yes. Right. That's that. Wow, gosh. It's like 11 a.m. and I, I need some ice cream. Ewing or Starks? John Starks. He's like, you're Michael Jordan, but I'm going to jump over your head. Yes. And, and he did it. And he's, you know, he came from the CBA. I know. He was one of those guys that no one he was He had expecting. no pedigree. He was Zero. a dropout. He, exactly. was, he was the Bobby he Flay. Was the, of, he's the Bobby Flay basketball, right. <laughs> All right. Final question. Butter or olive oil? Oh, God. Olive oil, because Gato's built on it. Good answer. Ladies and gentlemen, Bobby Flay, check out his new book, Brunch at Bobby's. Thank you very much, Bobby. My pleasure, sir. This podcast is brought to you by executive producer Bell Cushing and project manager Carrie Polis with editing by Mitra Kaboli. The theme music is by Valerie and the Greedies. Tune in every Wednesday for a new episode on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.